agape, verses 4 through 7. And then in verses 8 through 13, we, have, we see the surpassing greatness of agape. Now, this also means, as you can see from looking at that outline, that I'm actually not a preacher. And we've established that before, because if I really were a preacher, I would have found an alliterated way, see, to make that outline. In fact, I could have. I could have said the never-ending greatness of love, or the never-passing or the never-fading greatness of agape. Maybe I should have done that, and it would be nicely alliterated. You'd remember it better, maybe, or not. Anyway, let me read it now. And I'm reading from the New King James, again, because it flows a little better and a little more with the familiar text that many of us old folks have memorized in years gone by. Uh, But, unlike the old King James, it doesn't use an archaic word for agape that confuses the daylights of everybody. So, here we go. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. <clears throat> love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Whoopsie, wrong way. Come on now. Well, (laughs) sorry, I can't. I'm not doing well. Ah, there. Got the next slide up. Right, here we go. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. We go through the verses here. First on the necessity of agape. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, verse 1, but have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. The gift of speaking in foreign languages, which was one of the ones mentioned in chapter 12 and is going to be addressed a great deal more later in the book, must have been one of the most dramatic and impressive of the spiritual gifts. It seems to be one with which the Corinthians were impressed a great deal. They seem to set great store by it, even though God put it down near the lower end of the list of gifts. But they thought it was quite, quite impressive that you could speak in a foreign language that you hadn't learned. Now here you're seeing a little bit my interpretation of this, and I know good Bible-believing scholars do differ a little bit 
on uh, what exactly the gift of tongues was. Was it ecstatic babbling in a language unknown to anybody, or was it a foreign language? I lean towards a foreign language, but I'm not dogmatic about that. Anyway, whatever it was, it was impressive. It was dramatic. But without agape, it amounted to meaningless and unpleasant noise-making. It becomes sounding brass, metal banging against other metal. We get tired of hearing that after a while. Not a nice wind chime, but just some noise. And a clanging cymbal. Um, the word for clanging is alaladzo, and uh, that uh, shows up in a couple of places. Well, for a couple of things. One, it was something that uh, when armies were going into battle with each other, or sometimes if they didn't actually come to blows, of course, you know, back then there, were no, uh, there was no gunpowder, there were powder, there were no firearms at all. So battles, battles took place at pretty close range. And uh, before they would get to quite close enough to start chucking spears at each other, uh, the armies would make a lot of noise. They might bang their spears against their shields, or something like that, and they would, alalazo, uh, they would yell and screech and howl and carry on and make a lot of noise and hopefully scare the other guys to run away. It shows up in the Bible, alalazo, it shows up in the Bible when uh, our Lord went to the house of Jairus to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead, and by the time he got there, the professional mourners were already there. And they were making lots of noise. They were alalazo, alalazontas. Um, the uh, plural, yeah, anyway, the other, the other form, the plural form. Uh, they were just babbling, la la la, uh, all, making all kinds of howling, and I think uh, it's translated in the English wailing, all that noise, and uh, unpleasant, and the Lord kicked them out. Today, I guess where you would hear it would be if you went to a football game when the visiting team had the ball and the quarterback was, was coming up behind the center and the center puts his hands down on the ball and then if the, if the home crowd are well-instructed football fans, you will suddenly hear 40,000 people a la Santas just making a lot of noise. That's not pleasant. And... Uh, what if I can speak with the tongues of men and of angels and I have just the greatest spiritual gift as far as the Corinthians thought? And even if I had that, but um, it just amounts to meaningless and unpleasant noise, like someone banging on his cymbals. I guess I've read that sometimes they did that in the temples of the uh, false gods, bang on, on these pieces of bang, bang these pieces of bronze together just to sort of make an impression meaningless and not pleasant to listen to. Verse 2, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I have not love, agape, I am nothing. Now, chapter 12, we already went over that, and there were a couple of different lists of spiritual gifts in there, and prophecy was right near the top of one of those lists. Uh, the word of prophecy, the word of knowledge was mentioned. Faith, as in special faith, not saving faith that, you know, faith that God will be true uh, to the promises he's made in Scripture. Uh, 
because every Christian should be able to have that much faith. But the special faith that God will perform certain miracles and then working the miracles. The faith that, um, you know, maybe I think that God, or maybe that God really has, and that's the thing, it has to be real. Uh, I can't just make it up. But to think that God especially com- communicated to me that he desires to pick up Mount Everest out of the Himalayas, loft it over the entire Indian subcontinent, right into the Indian Ocean, and narrowly missing Diego Garcia. Uh, it would make a terrible tidal wave. But um, uh, he wants to do that, and, and by me. And, and so I have that special faith in work miracles. What if I had that gift? And the gift of pro- oh, and the gift of prophecy. Uh, you know, where God reveals things to me. And to understand all mysteries, now you remember that in the Bible, a mystery is something that human beings cannot figure out unless God specially reveals it to us. We're not going to know that thing unless God tells us, like, why God does some things. Why did God let the coronavirus come and create this pandemic? Why did he do that? Is that a judgment or what? Well, we all know, we can, we can speculate. There are speculations and $1.19 will get you a cup of coffee at McDonald's. Uh, we will know what God is doing if he chooses to tell us what he's doing. But if I understood all those mysteries, all those things, you know, those secret things that belong unto the Lord our God, according to Deuteronomy 29, 29, if I understood them all, I mean, even the date, hour of the Lord's return and had all knowledge and all that special faith and everything but I didn't have agape Um, and this would be about as dramatic as those gifts, gifts would get if I didn't have agape I would amount to nothing hmm and verse 3 though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Bestow, we hear the Greek word somiso. Somiso? I think so. Uh, to feed out in morsels, to parcel out, to give out by little bits. So that the picture here is that I'm just lovingly, well, I guess it wouldn't be lovingly because I don't have love. For whatever reason, not so much out of love. I am giving, I am bestowing all my goods. Here's, some, here's something, you want something, I'll give you something. I want to be looked at as a very generous person. I, I love basking in the idea of generosity, and so I'm handing out my stuff until I've given out all my goods, and I don't have anything left. And then if I give my body to be burned, maybe like the, the three Hebrews in Babylon who would not bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue, and he said they'd be thrown in the burning fiery furnace. And they said, God can deliver us. But if not, we're not going to bow down to your statue. And um, gave their bodies to be burned. Now, in this case, their bodies didn't get burned. But if I did, maybe when I got burned up and I didn't have love, none of that would profit me at all. God wouldn't be impressed in the least. Without agape, even martyrdom brings no profit. Now, there are people, it's said that in the early church, uh, hopefully the post-New Testament church, I would think the post-New Testament church, 
There were people who they, they got, you know, there were a lot of martyrs because there was a lot of persecution, bad persecution, not, not super low-grade persecution like we've had. We've had low-grade, but we have it now. But there was big-time, heavy-duty persecution, and people died for the witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, it got where people would desire martyrdom for the fame and the glory of it. Now that seems kind of strange because you'd be dead, but... They also had this belief that just being martyred would, would take care of everything. Whether God was pleased with you or not, or how you stood with God, if you just got martyred, you'd be okay with God. And they believed that. That would just be what you needed. And uh, today, to this day, Muslims have that belief. And you can go out and do all kinds of very un-Islamic things. And... Um, but if you go out and get martyred, of course, the Muslim idea of, Muslim idea of getting martyred is uh, not, not at all what uh, we would see in the Bible at all. I mean, you can go out and kill people for Allah and get killed doing it, blow yourself up, crash an airplane into a building, and that's, you're an Islamic martyr. And you're okay with Allah because you were a martyr. But no, 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 not at all, according to the New Testament. Even if you gave your body to be burned, even if you were the most dramatic of martyrs, but you didn't have agape, it would bring no profit. This is what John Wesley had to say to sum up the first three verses. Without this, that is agape, whatever I speak, whatever I have, whatever I know, whatever I do, whatever I suffer is nothing. That sounds pretty important, and it is. The necessity of agape. Okay. Love suffers long, verse 4, and is kind. What is love like? It suffers long and it's kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. So love suffers long. Love doesn't get fed up and give up. Love does not run out of patience. I've had about all I'm going to take of you. Now, there are times when it may become our responsibility to correct someone uh, in a biblical and godly way, uh, depending on you know, who it is and who we are, what our position is. Like, I'm a dad, and those are my kids. It's my responsibility to correct them in certain circumstances. Try to do that. And... Uh, there may have to be some stern words said, some plain talking. Other actions may need to be taken, but that's not what we're talking about. Love is by nature long-suffering and kind. Oh, and by the way, the Bible says, whom the Lord loves, agapes. Right? If I can conjugate that Greek word in, in the English, uh, Agape, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges, whips every son whom he receives. And he says that no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but rather grievous. That when, when we're getting chastened by the Lord, or when we were younger, in case it's been a little while since uh, I got chastened by my father, at least uh, in more than word, um, uh, that's, that was been a while. And, and poor old dad, in his later years, he became rather forgetful. 
He didn't remember me getting near as many spankings as I actually got. But uh, anyway, no chastening seems to be joyous, but grievous. It always seems grievous when it's happening. But afterward, it yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness to those who are exercised thereby. So being kind and being long-suffering does not mean just always letting everything go by. In certain circumstances where it is a responsibility to correct, correction must happen, and the correction's not going to be joyous, when it happens. But the nature of love is to be kind. Love does not envy. Um, not envy a neighbor's spiritual gifts, for example. as seems to have been the problem, one of their many problems. They're in Corinth, where they were wanting, I, I want to have that gift, and I'm not happy because I don't have that other gift, and I'm better than you because I have this gift. Love doesn't do that. Not about spiritual gifts, certainly, and not about anything else. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't go around boasting, parading itself. I'm the greatest. I'm the best. I'm uh, number one. I've done such a good job. Is not love. No. Does not brag. It's not viciously boastful. I've got a better spiritual gift than you do. No, no, no. Agape does not do that. Verse 5, love does not behave rudely. <clears throat> the old King James says, unseemly. I think we still, is that still a word? Do we still use unseemly? I do. Uh, unseemly behavior, etc. Yeah, love does not behave itself unseemly, rudely. Does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. Love is considerate of others. That's not being rude. Politeness, if you think about it, at the core of politeness, of all that's good of politeness, is being considerate of others. Now, I know sometimes the finer points of politeness, it, it would be very, very hard to reason uh, from the concept of being considerate of others to any kind of concept that told me which fork to use for my salad, the one on the outer edge, used from the outside in. Why, I don't know. And I have no idea why that's considered of others. I can't, I can't make any connection there. But many aspects of politeness are matters of being considerate of others. And that's what lies behind not behaving unseemly and not behaving rudely, is being considerate of others. We are trying to take thought of others. And why have even such a thing as politeness versus rudeness anyway? Well, because sometimes, especially if you're no smarter than I am, it's really hard to think enough steps in ahead. It's like a high-speed chess game. If I say this, and then that implies this, but then he might think that, and then that might hurt his feelings. So if I'm polite, that usually is kind of a shortcut to uh, being considerate of others. But not just politeness, but, but an avoidance of all rudeness and unseemliness, crudeness and unfitting behavior. Oh, but that's just my style. If you don't like my style, you should get up. No, no, agape doesn't say that. I will try to behave in a way that is seemly, in a way that is not rude, if I have agape. Love does not seek its own. It's not self-seeking. That's pretty obvious. I'm not trying to get ahead myself. I want a really good gifts. I want the gift of fun. I think I'd like the gift of miracles, or I, I'd like the gift of speaking in tongues. Now we no one will understand what I'm saying. No, 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 no. I'm not, that's not agape. 
Love does not run out of patience. It's not provoked. The King James translators, for whatever reason, the old King James translators, inserted the word easily. All the commentators say it just shouldn't be there at all. It's love is not provoked. Period. There you go. Well, there's not a period. There's a comment there, but it's just not. It's not provoked. Not easily, not difficultly. It's just not provoked. Well, now, that's, that's, just, that's just not human, is it? Not to be able to be provoked at all. Yes, that's right. It's not human. That's the beauty of it. We're going to need help. I'm reminded of what Lewis said in his book, C.S. Lewis said in his book, The Four Loves, that all the first three loves all can kind of fail. They can run out. They can even show a selfish side sometimes. And they all need agape to sort of come in and backstop them or support them or fill in for them or when they aren't good enough, agape to help us. And that comes from God. We're going to need God's help if we're going to have that at all. But love does not run out of patience. Love thinks no evil. In this case, as, I was, as far as I was able to understand what the commentators were under, to, was to understand of what this is saying is that love does not keep accounts of evils suffered. doesn't keep a scorecard. Well, turns out I owe so-and-so 14 really nasty turns. Um, you know, all that revenge is a dish that's best served cold? No, revenge is a dish that's best not served at all. <laughs> I was seeing, uh, you see all sorts of nonsense on Facebook. It's amazing. And I saw somebody, someone on, on my Facebook feed had said that the, the COVID-19 pandemic was a judgment of God. And someone else said, that's not a judgment of God. God doesn't take vengeance. Um, um, but, but, he says, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will pay. That's his, not mine. So agape doesn't keep accounts or try to pay people back at all. Okay, verse 6. Love does not rejoice. Agape does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love takes no pleasure in hearing of wrongdoing. It's not no pleasure in hearing that some evil person is worse than we thought he was. That's not a pleasure to us to hear. That makes us sad. That's painful to hear. Even an evil person. Even a person we think is horribly wicked. Think your very, very ultra least favorite politician. I want to picture, now, yeah, you're picturing your, your, the politician you despise the most. And you think he's very evil. And you'd like to pick up the paper and find out that politician so-and-so has done something wicked, again, even worse than everything else. Should that give us pleasure? No, it should not, regardless of who that politician is. We would be, should be saddened to hear that that politician has done, whoever it is, has done another thing that offends God's holiness. It takes no pleasure in iniquity. Um, rejoices in the truth, takes pleasure in truth. And that's how, pretty straightforward. Not much to be said there. Philippians 4.8, talking about the fruit of the Spirit. This finally, brethren, whatever is true. 
etc., 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 dwell on these things. These are good things to, to dwell on. Whatever is true and all those other good things that are good things to dwell on and feed our minds on and just to uh, allow to occupy space in our heads rent-free. You know, where they say, you know, you're letting so-and-so occupy space in your head rent-free. And we're you know, like, don't do that. Well, do let whatever is true and pure and of good report and so forth dwell on these things, think on these things. True heads the list because agape rejoices in the truth. Okay, verse 7, continuing in the nature of agape. Agape bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's very poetic, isn't it? And it's true. Of course it's true. Love tolerates, bears, tolerates all that duty and the law of God will allow. Now, of course, we owe to God. We have a duty to God. We have certain duties. For example, again, in our children, parents should not tolerate too much in their children, especially their small children. It is the parent's duty, to, uh, especially the father's duty, to train up that child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to correct that child. Uh, if you know the Lord, whom the Lord loves, He chastens, and if we're going to love our children, we're going to have to chasten them too, and we have to correct them. And so that means not tolerating some things, uh, and that becomes a duty. But insofar as duty allows me to tolerate, like what responsibility do I have to correct? Well, any of y'all here except Mary, uh, she's my daughter. Lucky Mary, but, um, or not, but um, uh, I don't really have much responsibility to correct you. I have responsibility to tell you the truth when I'm called upon to tell you the truth. Actually, there are some subjects on which I don't even have any responsibility to go out of my way to tell you the truth. We'd in trouble all the time if you want to hear it. You'll have to come and ask me. Um, but I'm, I'm not responsible for the most part. For the most part, there will be some things. If I see you in a sin, I'm, I'm to say something to you about that. Um, and as the scripture says, but th- aside from the things that scripture says, where I'm responsible to correct you, um, I'm to tolerate and bear all things from you. All that duty and the law of God will allow. And then love is always ready to think the best, to put the most favorable interpretation on people's words and actions as far as it can do so without betraying the truth of God. Do you know, my father was much farther advanced in the grace of God and in agape and in knowledge and wisdom and just everything than I was. I think I'm still trying to catch up. But um, we in hear about something, I think, so-and-so, they did such-and-such, and and I think they mean this, and they're trying to do that. Well, now, they may not have been doing that, and and Dad would be putting the best interpretation on it. (laughs) I remember one character we both had to deal with over a number of years. As I was an adult, we both had uh, the same boss. And uh, Dad uh, stuck to that... um, wonderful axiom or, or, or corollary, I guess it's a corollary of agape, never attribute to malice what can be explained by stupidity. 
No, we didn't go around calling the guy stupid. But he said, he's just making a mistake. He didn't mean it for malice. And I tended to think that guy was out to get us. I'm still not totally convinced he wasn't, just as far as truth is concerned. But Dad tried to put the most favorable possible interpretation on that person's words and actions. As far as you can do so without betraying the truth of God. Now, this does not mean that we are idiots. This does not necessarily mean that we are simpletons, although sometimes I think it does mean that we can be taken advantage of sometimes, maybe. Sometimes we are um, liable to be imposed on, as the saying is. I think so. Not that we want to be. We're supposed to be wise as serpents, you know, harmless as doves and wise as serpents that we strive to be. And maybe I only think that because I'm a bit gullible myself, more than a bit sometimes. But um, I have been taken in more than once in my life. But anyway, tries to put the most favorable interpretation of people's words and actions. I'm afraid I do it out of gullibility. My dad did it out of agape. When it no, uh, and then when regarding agape, when it agape can no longer believe the best of someone, when there is no longer any room for doubt, you know, you can't give people the benefit of the doubt if they don't leave any room for doubt. When it can no longer believe the best of someone, love agape hopes the best for that person, even though I now know it, this person is involved in X, Y, and Z, and with intention to do the same, and for the worst of purposes, I continue to hope the best for that person, to hope that they'll come around, and they're con- maybe they're confused about something from Scripture, I don't, and they'll, they'll come around. So agape continues to hope for them the best, as far as it can, and even when it can no longer believe or hope. Love patiently holds on. Uh, agape. Sometimes you've seen a mother do this. Sometimes I have, I have known a, not, <laughs> hopefully it wasn't my wife. <laughs> Maybe she has at times. And it hasn't gotten that bad, I hope. But I think of a, of a woman who I, I think I've referred to her before. And, uh, her husband had uh, falsely claimed to be a believer, as he later said, <clears throat> purely so he could deceive her into marrying him. And then... He told her that not long after they were married. He was, he, I think by his, well, no, I know his own testimony for a number of years, he was not a very good man or a very nice man. And she patiently held on. And love uh, endured all things when it had to, when it, when it couldn't believe or hope uh, in his salvation because he had told her flat out that he did not believe in the Lord Jesus and he never had. Um, love patiently held on, and that man is a believer today. Praise the Lord. That's what agape does. Whoops, I do that. How did I do that? Hmm, okay, maybe I have a slide out of sequence here or something. I got all the points down here. Well, we'll just deal with it this way. All right, love, now we get to verse 8, the surpassing greatness or the never-failing greatness of agape in these last few minutes. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Love never expires. Agape never expires, never passes its sell-by date, never goes out of fashion. 
At TCU commencements, when they graduate, the director of the Alumni Association says, remember, purple is always in fashion. Eh, whatever. Uh, maybe not so much. But agape is always going to be in style. You may look however dowdy to people, not the latest and greatest, but if you have agape, that's always in fashion. Agape will be as profitable to us in the next world as it is in this. You know, we read that bodily exercise profits a little. It does profit a little. It's profitable to this life. But godliness is profitable for all things, being profitable not only in this life, but in the next. And agape is at the heart of godliness. Someday, there will be no point in foretelling the future, because the future will have arrived. There will be no point in speaking a foreign language, because everyone will understand each other. You know that? We all get to heaven, we'll understand each other. I won't need a translator. You know, when, when Habakkuk comes up to me and he says, hey, did you read my book? How did you like it? Was it and I'm thinking, Habakkuk was a minor prophet, Hosea Joel. And, and, uh, but I will be able to understand him. And all the effort we put into learning foreign languages won't matter. Well, it matters in this life. Knowledge, the knowledge we've learned in this world won't matter. Not that it won't exactly be true. We'll, we'll be corrected regarding a number of points of knowledge where we're mistaken. We will know who really shot Kennedy. We'll know if Epstein really killed himself, along with a bazillion things vastly more important than either of those. And we'll know, as we are known, we'll have all the knowledge we need up there. And... Uh, I mean, all that knowledge, all that effort we put into being more knowledgeable than other folks won't matter anymore? I'm afraid not. It, uh, it helps us along in this life uh, to know things, not for the purpose of pride over other people, but uh, like Cornelius Van Til said, to protect Christ's little ones helps us to do that. But someday, that won't be a factor anymore. And in that day, we will still be practicing and enjoying agape more than ever before. And all the practice that we've put in and all the work that the Holy Spirit has done in our hearts and that we've cooperated with him in and learning to live in the practice of agape will still be just as valid and just as up-to-date and just as useful and will be made perfect in love finally and completely then in heaven. Love, okay, now I'm going to get the slide that should have been earlier, so sorry. Let's crank through these slides that we should have had in order here. All right. Now on to verse 9, quickly. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, and that which is in part will be done away. Really, that's just the explanation of what I've just been saying. So move on quickly from that. Verse 11 and 12. When I was a child, what I was just saying was the explanation of that. Pardon me. I'm going to say that scripture does not explain me. Yeah, I try to explain scripture, so let's get that right. Verses 11 and 12. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. Sometimes I still do. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Or I should Those things went away. Verse 12. For now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. Yeah, sometimes... Sometimes my, the childish things are not still as put away as I would wish. But um, great progress has been made, I will say that. 
The comparison here is between our state now on earth, including now even even uh, someone. I'm, I'm almost the oldest person in this room, by the way. Somebody has me by uh, about a year. Nothing will induce me to say who that is, of course. But uh, I am just about the oldest person in here. And even, even an old guy like me, um, there's, there's so much to learn. In fact, maybe the process of learning all these years has just been the process of finding out how much I still actually don't know and how much I still need to learn. And so it compares our present state here on earth with our perfected future state in heaven, not only in knowledge and wisdom and everything else, but just, well, in everything, yes, and in love. Our present state is compared to childhood. You remember when you were a child? Even I can remember when I was a child. And what silly things I thought and believed and what silly thought processes I had and how I misunderstood and what amazing misconceptions I had. I remember the most outlandish things that I seriously, truly believed were real. They weren't. And then I got older, and that just all went away. That just, oh, and some of those things, nobody ever had to tell me that that wasn't true. It was like, you you realize, oh, why in the world did I ever think that? Because I was a child, that's why. And our present state is compared to childhood, and our future state in heaven is compared to adulthood. Our present state is compared to seeing things in a mirror. Mirrors were not as nice then as they are now. A mirror then was a polished piece of metal, actually without any glass over the top of it, just a polished piece actually of bronze. Polish it up real good, and maybe you can see a reflection. It's like trying to shave by looking in the grill of your 68 Chevy or something like that, that you've polished up really well, or, or some piece of chrome or something. Looking at a piece of chrome, and um, hopefully you've got it good and flat. Hopefully you've got it very polished up. It doesn't have too much distortion or cloudiness, but it always has some. And that's how we see things. Plato in the Republic had an extended analogy regarding seeing things through a mirror. And you hold this mirror up, and you see the stuff behind you when you sort of see the ideals and all that in a cave. And you don't see it very clearly. I don't know if Paul, you know, the Holy Spirit was using that, that idea to illustrate things to the Corinthians or not. But um, we see things in a mirror, as it were. Uh, you know, look in this polished up piece of bronze and hold it here and try to see what's going on behind me. In riddles, uh, in a mirror dimly, we see it dimly, so it changes the analogy here. It's not how we see it in a mirror, but we see it dimly. We see it in riddles, in conundrums, in enigmas. It's just, what, what are things? Why did God bring the COVID plague on America now? Why was that? I don't know. I mean, I can speculate, but again, my speculations aren't worth, worth much. I don't know. The Lord knows. And so many other things. My mother used to have an expression. She'd say, that's one for the mystery bag. And sometimes when it seems like there were a lot of things that we couldn't understand, that we just couldn't know, mom would say, well, sometimes you just need to have a very big mystery bag for all the things that we don't understand and don't know. Now, we see in riddles and conundrums. But in the future, face to face, we'll actually see it then, and we'll know. Whoops. There we go. In the present, we have partial knowledge. 
You know, they say a little knowledge is dangerous. Um, a sophomore is sort of the, the wise fool. The, the, it's the person who's been in college for a whole year and now he knows it all. That used to be the case. Now the freshmen know it all already. But anyway, um, okay, that was a professor's joke, sorry. Except what's in the syllabus because they haven't read that. But anyway, um, we have partial knowledge now. We all are like that now. We're all like the sophomores or even the freshmen. We sometimes are so tempted to be so satisfied with our degree of knowledge. We, uh, maybe I speak, do my own testifying, right? But our knowledge is so partial, so lacking, so in part. But in heaven, we'll have full knowledge of what we need to know. Not omniscience. We're not going to be omniscient like God. We actually know everything, all that is knowable. But we'll have full knowledge of the things God wants us to know. And so, now abide faith and hope and love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Someday, when we get to heaven, the faith will be sight. The song says, Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. Uh, the clouds be rolled, the skies be rolled back as a scroll. Yes, well, the faith will be sight someday. We'll actually see. Someday, hope will be fulfilled. You know, hope in the New Testament is that confident, well-founded expectation of good that we have based on God's promise. God's promises. Well, someday the hope will be fulfilled. And hope, I suppose, will still be a good thing, but it will vanish away in a sense that it'll be fulfilled. We won't be living on hope anymore. We won't be living by faith anymore. I'll be walking by sight when we get there. But love, agape, will go on. Okay, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and his great love for us by which you demonstrated your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Help us to fulfill your commandment to us and that we love you with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. Help us to love each other, to love the brethren as the Lord loved us. Help us to increase in in love to you and to the brethren each day until we see your face. We pray that you would bless us now in the service to follow. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right.